me invite you to take your Bible tonight to First uh, Peter, First Peter chapter one. Is where we're going to find our text for this evening. First Peter chapter one, and uh, we'll begin in verse thirteen, and we'll come down through verse number sixteen. Uh, as you know, right now we're not in a series or an exposition yet on uh, Wednesday evenings. We'll be in one here in the near future, and the same for Sunday. So y'all, y'all pray for me as I'm seeking the Lord's direction for uh, for series and exposition. Uh, but I want to bring something that I think would be very applicable and a great reminder for us, especially as we're beginning a new year together, and uh, that is what Peter exhorts the Christians here uh, in this passage of Scripture. The title of the message is, Be Holy, for He is Holy. Be Holy, for He is Holy. And First uh, Peter 1, 13 through 16 is going to communicate that to us. Notice that he says, he's writing to these Christians, he says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action... And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Think about what Peter says here. He says, be holy. Well, what does that mean? Am I holy? Are you holy? Is your life holy? We think about what it means to be holy. We've probably all heard of this truth regarding holiness in one way or another. Um, but what's it mean? You know, I once had a uh, I once had a pair of jeans that had a couple holes in the legs, and uh, you know nowadays that's the style. You know, you buy them with holes in them. And uh, when I and it was kind of the style when I was a teenager too, but I bought some that were not in, that you, they didn't have holes in them. I just wore holes in them, and you just keep wearing them because that's what you do, right? And I went to a church event one day, and uh, one of my uncles or somebody had come up to me and said, "How did you get so holy?" And I started racking my brain. I thought, "What's he know about my life? I mean, how, what does he think I'm holy for?" You know, he's just sitting there laughing at me because he thinks he can tell I don't know what in the world he's talking about, and he started pointing to my my holes in my jeans and. I said, oh, you, you mean holy, like with holes in them, right? Well, because I didn't think I was that holy, all right? None of us should really think that way. But uh, he thought that was hilarious, and I got it after the fact. But that's not what it means to be holy, all right? The word holy that Peter uses here, and I put this definition in there for you, it's the Greek word hagios. It's an adjective pertaining to being dedicated or consecrated to the service of God. It speaks of human beings consecrated to God who are holy, pure, and reverent. Uh, Vine's Bible Dictionary states that in Scripture, regarding this word, in its moral and spiritual significance, separated from sin and therefore consecrated to God, sacred. So to be holy is to be distinctly set apart unto God in who you are, but also in how you live your life. And so we think about holiness and how important this is. Did you know that the word holy and holiness combined together they're mentioned over 650 times in your Bible. Over 650 times in your Bible. Do you think being holy is important to God or that holiness and what it means is important to God? Absolutely. Repetition speaks volumes when it comes to the scriptures. So when we look at this, uh, we come to the topic of what it means to be holy. We see it's very important to God, but it's not always that important to man, is it? In fact, how do people... Even professing Christians view the subject of being holy. Well, it's not readily and eagerly received. It's not the most exciting subject that we might come across in Scripture. You say, why is that? 
Because we in our fallen flesh and our fallen nature outside of Christ, holiness contradicts our lives. And what contradicts our lives, we don't necessarily like too well, do we? It goes against our nature. But what that also points to us is that this subject is ever more important to us because of what it does and what it means. So Peter says to these Christians, be holy in all your conduct. Let me point out a few things about holiness here tonight that I pray would encourage us and challenge us in our Christian walk. Number one, I want you to see the perfection of holiness. Where does holiness come from? What is holiness? Um, and if we want to know what holiness is, what it means to be holy, you look nowhere other than God himself. And the first point there is that God's character is holy. God's character is holy. Now, there are many attributes of God that we learn of in the scriptures. I love that subject in general. The study of the attributes of God is a glorious study. We know that God is. He's eternal. He's immutable. That means he never changes. He is uh, he's all-powerful, he's all-knowing, he is all-present, he is all-wise, he is love, he is merciful and gracious, he is jealous, he's wrathful. So many attributes that God has and is in himself. But it cannot be missed also in your Bible if you read through the scriptures that God's holiness, that God is holy, it is interwoven from beginning to the very end. That's why, you notice that Peter quotes here, he quotes the Lord saying all right? In verse 16, he says, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Peter's quoting Scripture. You say, well, what's he quoting? Well, if you look at the reference, it'll take you back to Leviticus 11.44, which God is speaking to his people of Israel. And he tells them, For I am the Lord your God. He says, Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. Uh, you'll read the little last part of that. There's application for them in that era and time with the laws given to Israel. You ever think, why did God give Israel these laws? And why did he give them these commands regarding what they did, how they worshiped, what their diet was, and all these different things? Well, all of these things distinctly set them apart from all the pagan nations around them. They were to be a unique and distinct people, and God gives them the outline for being that within that old covenant. So, but notice with intrinsically here is that foundational to them understanding the need of why they should be holy is first knowing that the God who saved them from bondage in Egypt, this God is holy. And so if they belong to the holy God, then he's going to lay this out for them to be holy. So when you think of God as holy, what comes to your mind? What's holiness mean for him? What does it mean that God is holy? Now, we usually think of his perfect nature, maybe his sinless nature, and those are true to his holiness, but it goes deeper than that when it comes to what holiness actually means. And I give you a quote from Sam Storms, which I think is, is a good description of this. He says, the holiness of God only secondarily refers to his moral purity, his righteousness of character. It primarily points to his infinite otherness. To say that God is holy is to say that he is transcend transcendentally separate. Holiness is not one attribute among many. It is not like grace or power or knowledge or wrath. Everything about God is holy. Each attribute partakes of divine holiness. 
And when you say God is holy, you're saying that he is infinite in his otherness, that he's completely beside himself, that there's nobody like him. And is that not what God repeats through the prophets over and over again? He said through the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 46, 9, he tells them, remember the former things of old, for I am God. Notice what he says, there's no other. He says, I am God and there's none like me. So when you think about holiness, yes, it refers to his sinless, perfect character, but it applies to every other aspect of who he is. Who else is all-powerful? None. He's completely beside himself in that way. Who else is love? None. He's completely beside himself in that way. Who else is all-knowing and all-present? None. He's completely beside himself in that way. So he is holy. He's really holy beyond what our mind can really fathom, beyond what our finite mind can fathom. See, he's the only true and living God, and here's what he says to his people in Isaiah 43, 15. He tells them again, I am the Lord, your holy one, your holy one, the creator of Israel, your king. He repeats this because he wants his people to know over and over and over again, he is holy. He is holy. When Isaiah experienced his vision of the throne room of God, you remember the seraphims were flying around the throne. They had six wings. Two were covering their face. Two were covering their feet. And with two, they were flying. But they were constantly proclaiming this repeated phrase. It was ongoing. And what was this repeated phrase? Isaiah 6 and verse number 3. One called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. You see, of all the attributes of God, there's only one in which he is named thrice, that he's thrice in nature, and that is his holiness. It never says that God is love, 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 or God is power, 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 but it does say that God is holy, holy, holy. The psalmist writes in Psalm 47, 8, God reigns over the nations. He sits on his holy throne. I love it. The holiness of God. I love the subject. You see, the scripture from beginning to end lays this out, that his character, who he is in his essence, he is consecrated, he is separate, he is infinitely distinct from all things and all persons. If I spent my entire life's breath in an attempt to exhaust you the holiness of God, I could not do it. God is holy. Take that to heart. But not only is God's character holy, let her be under this heading that you see that God's commands are holy. God's commands are holy. That which he speaks, that's what, that which he exhorts to us. See, because his character is holy, would we, would we expect anything less than what he says to be holy as well? Absolutely. There's a reason that on your Bible on the cover, if it has it printed, it's not just called Bible, is it? What's that little word in front of it? Holy Bible or holy scriptures. They're distinct. They're set apart. You see, anything and everything that God does and says is holy. Psalm 60 and verse 6, God has spoken in his holiness. And so when we look at his commands, we look at his word, they reveal to us um, knowledge of what is holy. They reveal to us what is holy because they also show us what is unholy, don't they? There's a reason God gave his, his law and his word as a whole. They reveal not only the nature of himself, but they also reveal the nature of our own selves. 
Because if God is holy and we don't line up with who God is, that means something's off with us, right? We don't match with him. We're not paralleled with him. We're not like him. And here's what Paul says as he talks about the law and how it reveals our own sinfulness to us. He says in Romans 7 and verse number 7, What shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if I had not been, if it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So as you read the law of God, it reveals to us what is holy because it comes from the Holy One. It also reveals to us what is unholy because of its commands. Don't do this and do this. It gives us a plain black and white explanation and revelation of what is right and what is wrong. You think of the Ten Commandments, just as Paul mentioned here. They reveal right and wrong, righteousness and unrighteousness, sin and sinlessness. Now, when we think about the law of God and his word, there are many misguided people who think that they can be good enough to keep all the commandments of God. There's been many times I've tried to evangelize and witness to people and show them their need for Christ, and many have said, well, I'm not that bad of a person. Or, you know, I just try to keep God's commands. Okay, really? You start going through a little back and forth asking them, you ever, you ever told a lie? Oh, well, yeah, I guess I have done. I've done that. You ever stolen anything? Oh, yeah, you got me there. You ever used God's name in vain? Oh, yeah, I have. Well, guess what? You're not doing real well at keeping God's commands, are you? You failed. You failed. And you remember what James says about keeping the commandments? James says in James 2 and verse 10, he says, for whoever keeps the whole law but falls in one point becomes guilty of all of them. <laughs> but it's if you fail one, you're guilty of all. You see, it's an impossibility to keep the commands of God for us. Say why? Because we're not holy, number one. We are fallen in our nature, and our own nature contradicts the law of God. Jesus said that even though we may appear to keep commands outwardly, that's not the main point, is it? It's more about what happens internally. And he uses this example to the Jews in his day. He says, you have the, the, it is written or it said, you, you shall not commit adultery. But what does he say to them? He says in Matthew 5, 28, I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You say, well, I'm not that bad of a person because I've never gone and slept with somebody else other than my spouse. Well, have you looked with lust at somebody with, other than your spouse? What does Jesus say that is? He says that is adultery in the heart. So the law of God penetrates more than just the outward. It's about the inward. It's about what's internal. And so holiness is far deeper than just outward demonstration. So when you think of all the truth that is in the Bible, you think about all the commands and all the character of God, what would you say is probably the most terrifying truth? I think the most terrifying truth for us as mankind is the fact that God is holy and we're not. Because he's holy, he cannot allow unholiness in his sight, and he must do something about it, and that is judgment. So if we're not holy, what should we expect from a righteous, holy God to do with wicked men? Number two tonight, notice with me the position of holiness, and this is where we see the great, the great need we have, but also the great grace God has bestowed upon his people, and we'll get into the application of what Peter brings out here in a moment. This kind of sets the stage of why this why what Peter is saying is so important. But here's what I want you to recognize firstly, is that man is in desperate need of righteousness. 
See, what, what, what does God's holiness reveal about humanity? It reveals our unholiness. The vast holiness of God reveals the great sinfulness of man. You know, many people wonder, why do us Bible-believing Christians harp on sin so much? Because sin is more serious than we realize it is. So why is sin so great? Because the holiness of God is great. Sin isn't some light matter. It's not some little thing that we sweep under the rug and then it's just kind of disappears, fades in the background. Sin is treason against the court of heaven, the creator of heaven and earth. And so God tells us, without apology, and we ought to be thankful for this, that God doesn't sugarcoat what we need. He just tells us what we need. He tells us how sinful we are. Look with me in your Bible to Romans 3 for a moment. Romans 3, and just notice this passage of Scripture. Romans 3, verse 9 through 19. He says, What then? Are we Jews better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their path are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. You know what Paul's done here? He's shown us exactly how wretched we are without Christ. He says there's none that are righteous, none that are seeking after God genuinely, maybe for ulterior motives, but not genuinely for God and his holy character. There is none who does good. And you notice he says not even one. Not even one. He eliminates any possibility. And, and so this world, you understand, we live in a world that's full of people who think they're good people. We even use that term pretty loosely, right? Well, that's such a good person. Well, biblically defined, that's not true. There's no person who is good. You see, God says through the prophet Isaiah regarding those who think they're good things that they do, have good things that they do. He says in Isaiah 64, 6, We've all become like one who's unclean. Notice what he says. All our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. We all fade like a leaf. Our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Righteous deeds are like polluted garments. Polluted garments. You see, people often tell me, well, I think I'm all right with God. Well, that doesn't matter. Is God all right with you? That's the difference. What's, what's, what's God, how does God view you in light of your sin, right? doesn't matter what you think. What does God say? You see, here's what God says about the sinner. He says in, in Psalm 7, 7, 11, he says, God's a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. He is angry with the wicked every day. You see, God as a righteous judge. He has no choice but to bring justice on every sin that is ever committed. There's no possibility of any sin not being paid for. It's not even, it's not even a question. The judge of all the earth always will do right. He's not going to forget about your sin. He's not going to forget about how we have transgressed him. You know, there would be times when we'd travel on our high school basketball team, and, you know, as teenagers, we're always well-behaved little angels, you know, in those formative years, right? 
But uh, usually on the way there, on the way home, we would get to acting up on the bus and just, you know, rowdy and acting foolish, and we'd get warned, we'd get warned, we'd get warned, and eventually the coach says, all right, I've had enough. Guess what's happening in the next practice, you know? And we'd have the threat of this, you're going to run 10 laps of stairs or whatever. And uh, usually the next day before practice, all those teammates, we knew we were in trouble, and we'd be chit-chatting. You think, you think Coach forgot about what he told us last night? You think we'll get by today without having that punishment that he, he said he was going to give us, right? And uh, usually the coach would remember, unless he just was merciful and gave us a break. And, uh, but most of the time, we, we ended up running our laps, and we didn't get out of that kind of thing. Um, sometimes coaches might forget. Sometimes parents might forget or let us off easy. But there's no choice for God here because of his holiness. For him to let one sin go unpunished is to compromise his holy character. And that's something that he cannot do. He cannot do that. See, even, even if it's a light matter in our eyes, we may think some sins are just, well, that's not that big a deal. There's no such thing as a sin that's not a big deal to God. Jesus said this in Matthew 12, 36. He said, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Think about how detailed that is. Every careless word spoken. So there's no way out of the righteous judgment of a holy God. You can't run from it. You can't hide from it. You can't escape it. We're in desperate need of help. What's the answer? Well, letter B is God alone has the answer for us, and he's provided the answer in Christ. And that is that God alone can impute righteousness to us. See, we are in desperate need of that, and only God can give that by grace and mercy. You see, God would have been completely just and holy and loving and gracious and merciful if he had cast everybody into hell and not given any opportunity, any kind of salvation. Your living today is an act of God's mercy. But God went beyond just giving us mercy in earthly life. <laughs> he displayed mercy for us in an infinite way in which he gave us eternal life through the sacrifice of his son. You see, this only comes through someone who is righteous, someone who is perfect, someone who is holy, meeting the demands of God for his justice. And you know who did that? It is none other than Jesus Christ. The whole reason for the virgin conception and birth is that he bore, he came into the world taking on human nature without taking man's fallen nature, the nature of Adam, which we all have. And so Jesus, in his mortal life, we understand he lived the life that you and I could never live which is a sinless life so that he could pay the debt we could never pay and conquer the enemy that we could never conquer, which is death. And so thus Paul says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. That's a terrible, that's a terrible uh, end of the story if it stops there, right? But there's more to the sentence, more to the verse. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Not through you, not through the church. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So what does Christ's death do for those who believe? Well, just to give you a summary, snapshot here. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, and also in verse 21. Here's what happens for the believer, the one who is born again by faith alone. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Paul says to the Christians in Corinth, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, what is he? He's a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. You understand that when a person is born again by faith, 
they are not the same person they used to be. Sure, they still inhabit a flesh that's at war with them and their new nature, but internally they have been changed. They've been given a new heart. And here's what happens to our account. Verse 21 of that same chapter. For our sake, he, being God, made him, being Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might re-become the righteousness of God. You understand that right there, there is a transfer that takes place, an imputation. God took our sin, put it on Jesus. It be, he became sin who knew no sin. He bore sin for his people on the cross, paying the righteous judgment they deserve to pay from God the Father. And in so doing, he is a substitute on behalf of his people, those who believe. What happens to those who believe? Here's what it says. They are given the righteousness of Christ. Think about that. I, I ponder that, and it just amazes me every time I ponder it and read that. That the righteousness of Christ, as holy and perfect as he is, that is credited to my account. My account. You understand what my account's full of? Nothing but sin. I have nothing good to offer. But because of the cross, God washes that clean and credits Christ's righteousness to my account through faith alone in him. That is what salvation is. That is what salvation is. It's hard to ponder that. So how does that righteousness because of your own? As I mentioned, it is only through faith believing on him, which happens at the new birth. You look at Romans 4. You're here, here in Romans, so just look over another chapter. Romans 4, look at verse 3 through 8 for a moment. Notice what Paul says. He uses biblical examples for this. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. In this blessing then only, the circumcised, and also for the uncircumcised, for we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Abraham is an example. Abraham was not saved by his works. By his obedience, by other things that he did, he was saved by his faith in Christ alone. And the same applies to you today. People in the Old Testament and people in the New Testament have always been saved by faith alone. Not by their works. He said, well, what about all those sacrifices and ritualistic things that they did? All of those were just pictures of what Christ was going to do. Faith was looking forward to what Christ would do. And we in the church today, we look backward to what Christ did do. And there at the center point of history is the cross. And guess what? People on both sides are saved by faith alone and one person alone, and that's Christ. Christ's work, not mine. Christ's alone. If you trust in a different work, if you trust in your own work, some kind of religious work, your trust is in the wrong place. Faith is only as good as its object. And if the object is not Christ, your faith is meaningless. It is dead, James says. And so you must look to Christ alone. Not your religion, not your works, not any kind of things you've done in your past or you think you're going to do in your future. It's all about being born again. You know, this new year is often a time of 
new you talk language, right? New Year's resolutions and all that sort of thing. People tend to say, oh, I'm going to turn over a new leaf. I'm going to become a better person and all that. There's nothing wrong with making some good changes and habits in your life. You should do that. But ultimately, if you want to change life, you must know Jesus because he's the one who makes us into a new creature. Not just an outward show of things, but a new creature, a new creation within, in our heart. And this is what makes us holy before God. It's Christ's righteousness, not mine. Now, here's, here's what Hebrews 3.1 tells us, all right? Notice how the writer describes the brothers, the Christians he's talking to. Hebrews 3.1. Notice he says, therefore, what brothers? Holy brothers. Holy brothers. You who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. You understand that as a Christian, because of Christ... Your position before God is that of holy. Holy. That doesn't mean your life is perfect, that in your flesh you're perfect, but your position before God, your eternal account before Him, is holy. Because Christ has made you that. I've mentioned this before, that as you read through the scriptures in the New Testament, you notice that Paul does not say, write to the sinners in Ephesus. He doesn't write to the wretched in Corinth. He writes to the saints. You know what the word saints means? Holy ones. Holy ones. It's the same root word, hagios in the Greek. Holy ones, consecrated ones, because they know Christ. Charles Spurgeon rightly said, holiness is not the way to Christ. Christ is the way to holiness. So if you're trying to be holy in your life without Jesus, you're going to fail miserably. But you come to Jesus, and he's the one who makes you holy. And this is truly where it ties into our practice, where holiness must be revived in the church. Notice with you, number three is the practice of holiness. The practice of holiness. And there's two basic things here I'll bring out from what Peter has kind of communicated to us. And I want you to see the first thing regarding this is that in Christ, we must yearn for holiness. If you know him and if you're in him, it should be your heart's desire to want to be holy in how you live your life. Because of Christ and what he has done. You see, I think that one of the greatest tragedies of modern Christianity today is a carelessness about being holy in their life. And perhaps because many in American Christianity, I I think there's a lot in American Christianity who just aren't born again to begin with. There's so much false gospel propagated under church roofs that many people are, are under the umbrella of the Christian name but have never been born again in their hearts. And may I say that if you're not born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God, Jesus said. So you must be born again. But understand this, that carelessness towards holiness, even among God's people, is a tragedy. You see, we cannot think that because we're saved by grace that somehow that allows us to live carnally and just be fine, as if we can live in sin and be, you know what, I'm saved, it's all under the blood. I've heard that before. People justify their sins like, well, it's just under the blood anyway. Do you understand how precious that blood is? You see, to take lightly your sin as a Christian is to take lightly the blood of Christ. For his blood is what was shed for the sins that you think you're okay with. Romans, Romans 6, 1 through 2, he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? 
King James, I like how the King James translates that. He says, God forbid. God forbid that we live in sin after having been saved by grace. And that brings us to Peter's command here in verse 15 and 16. Notice what he says in this passage in 1 Peter. He says, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. God wants our conduct, which that refers to our principles and way of life, our behavior, our conduct in life to be holy, to be consecrated and set apart unto him. So that brings the question that drives home to my heart and all of our hearts. Is our behavior and the way in which you live, is it holy as Peter describes it here? Is it? Is it? Not just on Sundays when we're gathered around church people. It's easy to be holy here, right? What about when you go home? When you're out on the job? When you're out doing whatever? When you're in private? Are you holy? Are you living in accordance with, with what God has revealed in his word? You see, how can our life be holy? I'll tell you, you grow in holiness as you walk with Christ and you're growing in your Christian life. Uh, I can tell you, the closer that you follow Jesus in your life, the more distinct your life will be. That's why prayer and the scriptures are so vital for you. Because ongoing sanctification is part of Christian growth. You don't get saved, born again, and then instantly you're just this perfect Christian person. We'd like to think that, wouldn't we? Now, you've been changed internally and your account's different before God now. But now, once you've been saved, the Bible calls you a baby in Christ, and you begin to grow. You're growing up, and you're growing in sanctification. D.L. Moody rightly said, A holy life will make the deepest impression. Lighthouses blow no horns. They just shine. <laughs> you understand, if you're going to be holy in your life, you don't have to tell everybody you are. You just got to live it. Don't toot your own horn, basically. That's a better way of saying that. You can't toot your own horn to holiness. You got to live it out. You see, there's a great deception in the world that I fear many Christians have bought into. It's the just be yourself motto. Just be yourself. Well, who is yourself? Who are you? If, you? if you just let yourself have your way, what are you outside of Christ? You're sinful. You naturally follow your flesh. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Just follow your heart is some of the worst theological advice ever given today. Because your heart, meaning referencing your flesh, is always going to follow after that which is contrary to God. Dale Partridge says this, The motto, be yourself, has become Satan's counterfeit to God's be holy, as I am holy. So we need to yearn for holiness. You know why? Because God desires our holiness far more than he does our happiness. Wait a minute, aren't I supposed to be happy in life? Oh yes, God wants you to be happy too. But do you understand that true happiness in the Christian life is to be holy in your life? The most miserable I've ever been is when I've been distant from God. When I've decided I'm just going to do my own thing. I'm going to follow my own heart. Because you and I understand as Christians, we have the Holy Spirit within us. And what does Ephesians tell us happens when we go down that road? We grieve the Holy Spirit. We can grieve him with our life. And so you understand that, that 
Happiness does not compare to holiness, but true holiness, understand, leads to happiness for the Christian. And I want you to understand this, that if you can be happy without Christ, you don't know Christ. It's just that simple. If you can be happy in this world without Christ, you don't know him. We must know him because true happiness is found in Christ alone. So we ought to yearn for it. Yearn for a holy life and living in a holy manner. Peter gives us pretty good reason in verse 13. What did he say in verse 13? He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What's he talking about there? He's talking about the coming of Jesus. Do you believe Jesus is coming again, Christian? You can answer that. Do you believe that? Y'all are still full, aren't you? That's really quiet. Do you believe Jesus is coming again? Yes, you do, right? You should. That's what the scripture teaches. What happens at the revelation of Christ? When Christ comes in, what happens for you? What happens for me? That is the day of our glorification. The day day when the war with the flesh, the world, and the devil is over. The day in which we are permanently made like Christ with new glorified bodies. What a marvelous and wonderful day that will be. See, that will be the day when all the battle is over. All evil will be permanently eradicated. If we're looking forward to that day, don't you think we ought to live also for that day? And that's what Peter's tying this together to. He says, set your minds where they need to be because Christ is going to come. Live holy because he is holy. Live out what he's made you to be internally. Letter B, and lastly, we must yield to, yield to holiness. In Christ, we must yield to holiness. Not only should we yearn for it, that's desire. But then we, see we should yield to it, which is devotion, which, was, which is actually actively living out as we ought to live out. And I'll look to one final passage for this, and that's Romans 6. Notice what Paul says to the Romans. Romans 6, and look at verse 12 through 14 for a moment. And then we'll look at verse 21 through 22. We'll be done. He says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passion. Did you see that? That's application for the Christian. Say, well, well, isn't God sanctification of himself? Yes, it is. He's the one actively at work in us, but that does not eliminate our own responsibility in actively applying and living out his word. You can become imbalanced on sovereignty, and you can become imbalanced on man's responsibility. If you're imbalanced, then you're out of balance, Right? Both are taught in the scriptures, all right? It's him, we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But then Paul says, it's he that works in us to do the will of his good pleasure. So understand, this is about practical application here. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. That's application. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those that have been brought from death to life and your members as God, to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will not have dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. Paul's giving a very practical principle here. But then he reminds them later at the end of this chapter, look at verse 21 and 22 for a moment. He reminds them of the endless uselessness of going after the ways of sin. What fruit did you get out of those things? What fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? What was the end result of those things, those passions you enjoyed? He says, the end of those things is death. Why don't you go after that which was bringing you death? 
But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. That's a great contrast for us. Responsibility to put sin to death is a daily thing for us as Christians. A couple quotes to close with. John Owen rightly said, if you've never read John Owen on the mortification of sin, I would highly recommend you read that book. Mortification of Sin by John Owen is a goldmine. But he says, thus it is the constant duty of believers to render a death blow to the deeds of the flesh that they may not have life and strength to bring forth their destructive influence. Well, I'm not as bad as some other Christians. Maybe you've convinced yourself that you're not as unholy as some other people, and therefore you're adequate, you're okay with where you're at. Martin Luther just said it this way, be careful not to measure your holiness by other people's sins, because that is our tendency, is to prop ourselves up in light of other people. But we're never to compare ourselves to other people, are we? What are we to compare ourselves to? Christ and his word. Christ and his word. And so we are called to be a holy people because God has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. You go read 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10, he kind of lays that out, that we're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and we ought to live out that evidence in our life. So um, this challenge is one needed for us because we're entering into a new year full of wickedness and corruption, full of temptation, full of battles with the flesh, the world, and the devil. But the call to us remains the same. Peter says, be holy because he's holy. Be holy because he's holy. So I pray that's a challenge for us as we enter this new year and a reminder to us about our Christian life. And I pray that all of us know Christ here tonight. If you don't, I'm always available to talk to you about that. Never be afraid to come and pull me aside and say, hey, I'd like to talk to you about my spiritual life. And I would be happy to do that. Um, but we need, to, we need to pray for each other as a church that we would be holy. And be faithful to the Lord in this coming year.